My name is Pat Stream. I'm the counseling pastor here at Faith Community Church, and I want to welcome you for uh, those of you in the room. It's good to have you here. Uh, welcome you online. And if you're new here today, I especially want to send you a welcome to it's, it's great that we're here together. We get to read God's Word. We get to learn from it and be under it. And uh, the Spirit is at work when he, we preach His Word. So this is a uh, third week of a series that we've titled, uh, Why Do I Do What I Do? And in that first week, Tim Porter, Pastor Tim Porter, explained how the heart is the control center of our lives that we have our human thoughts, our feelings, and our actions, that they come out of our heart. And then the week after that, so this would be last week, Tim Prince taught us about how the heart drives everything that we do. And I, he, he had displayed this diagram, this fruit-to-root diagram, and I want to focus in on a particular area of this diagram to further develop uh, how the heart drives us. And I'm, I'm going to be focusing on the, the desires and the motivations, quite frankly, of the heart. And I've titled this message, How Do I Recognize Idols in My Heart? So we will define what that means, and we will look for the connections, and this is all coming from God's Word. And to be transformed by what God's Word says, I believe that we need to take questions like, why do I do what I do? And we need, we need to personalize them. We need to, uh, we all have individual expressions of that question. So here's some examples of what I mean. These are questions that one or more of all of us may have in this room. Why did I marry this person? Why did I watch Netflix for 48 hours straight? Why did my heart, why does my heart pound in my chest when I'm in social settings? Why don't I have any real close friends? Why did I buy a 75-inch big screen TV when I just went for butter? My wife reminded me again. I went for eggs. Actually, I was okay. So I feel like I need to justify something here. Is I didn't actually buy the TV. You know, I mean, I I, I didn't do that. But um, but I and I forgot the eggs too. So so why are my negative thoughts so hard to control? Why did I spend nearly in my entire paycheck at the bar the last week? Why is my marriage chronically broken? Why do I not care about anything in the world when it's sunny and 75 degrees outside? Actually, that question's not that bad. Why, why ask why, right? Why, why do I yell at my wife and my kids? Why can't I stand myself? Why do I insist my child lives up to my expectations and it enrages me when she doesn't? Why do I need to be seen as the best leader at work? So these are questions that if we keep going, we could keep unpacking different variations of this question is why do I do what I do? We each have our own versions of that question and we also have our own unique answers. Because people are intricate. We're, we, are, we are complex, sophisticated creatures. You've probably heard of this, this, how people are like onions, and that if you try to understand them, you start to peel back the layers, and the more layers you peel back, you get to the core. So we've been helped in this sermon, or in this series by Porter and Prince when they've talked about when you strip away all those layers and you get to the center, what you're talking about and what the Bible tells us, God's mercy through his word tells us this is your heart. This is who you are. So it gives us an understanding of who we are. And I'm going to continue to develop this idea that the, the, our universal nature is our heart, 
and our universal response to life and how we function comes down to our motivations, comes down to our desires and our motivations that we have. We all have that in common, whoever you are. So before I get into our scripture passages, pointing this out, I want to care for you. My, my counseling pastor heart, I want to care for you and I want to I just, I want to talk about something here that you're going to experience in the next 25 minutes. And I'm going to do that with a, uh, just picture this. You're in a work meeting. You're about ready to get on a Zoom call or whatever it is. You're going to present something to a group of people. And you've, you've studied, you've got your, your ducks in a row and you're ready, your confidence is high. And then one of your coworkers comes rushing up to you, looking at you all frantically, and they point out that you have this piece of spinach in your teeth right before you're about ready to go live. And I think we've been in situations, whether it's something in your teeth, whether it's something in your nose, whether it's uh, something on your shirt, whether it's your fly is down, whatever it is, thank goodness that this person, this friend, came and was a hero to you and saved the day. So we're embarrassed at the same time. We're very embarrassed, and we're also gra- grateful at the same time. Now let's switch that around. Let's flip the script, and let's talk about it's only after the meeting, when you look in the mirror and you see that you had spinach in your teeth. And you're thinking, why on earth didn't anybody give me a heads up? I have friends on this team. Why didn't they tell me? Right? So there's this embarrassment and there's the, oh my goodness, what did that look like for an hour? That's why everybody was laughing at my presentation. So when you think about it is, we all want somebody to tell us the truth. And so when we, when, in today's message, I'm going to delve into some similar discomfort. And I want to do this because I want God to, unre- to reveal to us these unwanted aspects of our life. And then I would ask you, encourage you to embrace this discomfort because in the end, it's going to strengthen your faith. In the end, it will deepen your trust in God. So we'll take a look at two passages uh, from the New Testament here. And before I get into that, I just would like to share that... Um, when we approach the Bible in Sunday services here, we, you've noticed probably that we read through either an entire book or we read as the scripture comes to us through large passages. So what we're going to do today, though, is we're going we're gonna to do something that is, um, we're going to take a look at a topic. In fact, that's what we've been doing in this series, is that we say, what does the Bible have to say about a particular topic? So we kind of scan the scriptures. We're still doing expositional preaching, which means we're still looking at what's the original meaning of the text? What did God really want to say? But this time, we're just, we're just going to look at a theme across the Bible. And so we've been talking about the heart, and we're going to continue with that. So the first passage that you can look up in your Bible, if you have a Bible in the chair, it's page 863. It's Luke 6, 43 to 45. And it will also show up on the screen. So 863 in the Bible in the chair. And then whatever Bible you have or device you're using. And this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. Teaching them. He says, For no good tree bears bad fruit. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So a couple words here about what Jesus is talking about, okay? In this passage, he's using that analogy of that tree and the fruit. 
So we didn't just come up with the fruit to root concept that we've seen on the screen before out of nowhere. It comes right from this passage. And Jesus is actually carrying forward an idea from Jeremiah. So what he's really saying is that there's this connection between your inner character and your outward actions. And what's really essential to pick up on this is that the nature of a person's heart is revealed by their actions and their words. The idea that the fruit of a person's action indicates the state of their heart. And you see further that he, he says what drives a person in these actions are the treasures. So it's the wants, it's the desires of the heart. And this means that in, we can take it forward to modern terms and say it's our motivations. So the answer to the question from the way Jesus is teaching here is why do I do what I do? It's because I want what I want. Is really what he's, part of what he's saying here. And now the next passage we'll look at today is James 4, 1 through 4, and this can be located at page 1012 in your Bible. You can flip forward in your own Bibles and your devices. So James 4, 1 through 4, it'll be on the screen as well. So James is talking to a local church and he asks, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, James is talking to a local church, and he's saying that, hey, the fights and the quarrels and the conflict that's happening in your church community, it's because of your unmet desires, unmet and unchecked desires. This is leading to jealousy and all sorts of sin in your church. And he's also addressing the issue of praying with wrong motives. When individuals pray and they ask for things with selfish ambition and selfish motives, they're seeking their own personal pleasure rather than what God wants for them. So again, we see that James is about internal desires and motivations that when they're unchecked or they're out of balance in life, they're gonna lead to conflict with other people and also distance from God. I'm going to share a couple more passages. You do not, I didn't want you to have to flip around all over the place, so you'll see him showing up here on the screen. We have one from the Old Testament, prophet Ezekiel, chapter 14. It says, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Every one of the house of Israel sets up his idols in his heart. I, the Lord, will answer him according to the multitude of his idols. So we have this biblical concept of idols. What goes through your mind when you think about idols? So it's perceived, especially when you think about idols, you're th- I, I, I get the picture of somebody bowing down before an object, uh, paying, paying worship to this, and wooden trinkets and golden calves. And that certainly happened back then. It even happens today around the world in different cultures. But what we see in Ezekiel is that God actually shows us a link between what's happening in idol worship. He's showing our hearts and how our motivations and our desires are what's fueling our worship of an idol. And he's saying that idolatry is about 
attitudes and motivations of the heart. So idols of the heart. So it's not just actions, but there's something happening in the heart when we worship anything other than God, which would be idols. I have one more passage to share with you because this is from the New Testament, and this just shows how idolatry is embedded in our human nature. It, 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 it was there. Uh, it's part of our sinful nature. So let me read in Romans 1, 21 through 23, and then 25. It will be up on the screen. For all they, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things, creeping things. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So we have, we looked at Luke, we looked at James, we looked at Ezekiel, we looked at Romans. We could keep going. There's over a thousand references in the Bible about the heart and how idol worship. So for purposes of today, let's take this forward to our time and space in America in 2024 and say, okay, what, what, are, what is a heart idol? Well, we need to start with God created human beings to be completely dependent on him, to be completely fulfilled in him, and God did create human beings with desire. That is before the fall of man, so God created human beings to have a desire for him. And that desire was filled in a relationship with him. So in, that, in those desires, this is what they would look like in modern terms. And these are desires for God. Comfort, security, acceptance, affirmation, pleasure, meaning, attention, freedom, power, control, happiness, peace, reputation, love, intimacy, and success. But when an idol sneaks in, when something or someone else comes in and fulfills these desires or we believe that they can fulfill these desires and we let it happen, that is when idolatry takes over. It's a drift away from God. And here's a definition of a heart idol. An idol is anything or anyone that begins to capture our hearts and minds and affections more than God. So idolatry doesn't lie in the object or the person or whatever it is that we're worshiping, what it is, is it lies in the misplaced adoration and affection. So we're giving our attention, our heart's desire, we're giving that to somebody else or something else other than God. And as I had said, idolatry is universal. It is what every human being has in common. It is we all experience together. And where does this come from? It comes from our human sinfulness. And as I had said, God created us for a divine desire for him, for, for a relationship with him. And because of the fall, that was broken. And so we have this tendency to turn to other things to fulfill these needs. Here are some real-life examples that I want to share with you so we can start to get a picture of what this is. And uh, all these names have been changed, but if your name is on this list, it may or may not be about you. I wouldn't know. But I tried to tell my daughter, Sarah, this morning that, uh, hey, I'm going to actually use your name. Uh, it doesn't mean I'm talking about you, but maybe I am. <laughs> no. Uh, these are just examples, okay? But these are real-life scenarios. James speaks or seeks pleasure and attention 
in his romantic relationships, expecting it to provide fulfillment instead of relying on God. And then we have John who relentlessly pursues career success. He tries to seek comfort and security in professional achievements rather than finding solace in God. Mike finds comfort, pleasure, and a sense of identity in sports. He makes them his source of attention and control. He neglects a deeper connection with God. And then you have Sarah, who invests heavily in her appearance, believing that it brings her affirmation and attention and acceptance, yet she's missing out on this deeper acceptance that God offers her. And then you have Jessica, who places, she's a young mom, she places her family above everything. She expects that if she just raises her kids right, that it'll bring comfort and security, and she's overlooking what God is ultimately bringing to her and blessings with him. And then you have Rachel. She's in constant comparison. She's a teenager, and she's looking for desire, and she has desire for acceptance, affirmation, and pleasure. And she's just missing this unique opportunity that God has for her. And then Ethan, who's also a high schooler, he's pursuing academic success. He is driven like no one else. He is driven, though, by a desire for authority and control in his future. He's neglecting his own spiritual growth. And then the last one is Maya. Maya, she's a teenager as well, and social media approval is her, uh, drives her, and she's just seeking for a desire for acceptance and affirmation. Again, she's overshadowing. All of this overshadows her understanding of God's love for her. As I had mentioned, there's over a thousand instances of the Bible where the heart is mentioned, and then it's reflected in these kind of scenarios that I just gave you. Uh, Dr. Ed Welch has written, he's a psychologist and a pastor and a biblical counselor's counselor. He said, all of, all of idolatry, all of these references in the Bible to the heart, they really come down to variations of one question. They really come down to a variation of a heart-level question, and here's what that might sound like. Do you trust people or the one true God? Do you love the world or Jesus? Will you serve money or God? Is your treasure in the world or in Christ? Here's a key takeaway is that we are always asking these questions. We are always asking this question at the most basic level. You may be conscious of it or not, but the question is, is we are either for God or against him. So our questions are, is God good or not. That, that shows itself in idolatry because whenever we choose to follow idolatry, we are believing the lie going all the way back to the garden that says God is not good enough for you. And idolatry takes us to places, and you know, in a lot of ways, we function like we're atheists. So people, there are people in this room that may not believe in God, and there are people who believe in God. But at the core, because of idols, we tend to all function like atheists. That doesn't mean if you're a Christian, you're not a Christian. It's just that a Christian in daily life, because of the influence of idols, can function like an atheist. So the Bible underscores the need that we have to have self-examination. We have to identify and eliminate our idols because any idol will become a snare in our life, a trap. And I say that because of Psalm 106. It says, they did not destroy the peoples concerning whom the Lord had commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do what they did, and they served their idols, which became a snare to them. So our heart idols, they mess with our perspective of ourselves, they mess with our perspective of each other, and they mess with our perspective of God. 
And another way to say this is idols, the way we approach our heart idols is we, they are false saviors. They are surrogate saviors. They are not going to promise or they are not going to deliver what only God can give us. And then over time, when you worship these idols, they lead to frustration. It leads to despair in life. It leads to fear. And this just this meaningless pursuit of trying to cope with life. And it could go on for a lifetime. John Calvin had said the heart is an idol factory. So we're cranking out idols of the flesh as fast as we can set our heart on something, some new pleasure. We're just cranking them out, okay? So it's important that we learn what's, what's operating in our lives when it comes to idols. It's important to see that on a very specific level. So when you take a question as, why do I do what I do? It's a, it's a general question. And what we need to do is we need to make it very personal. We need to make it very specific because nobody changes with general information but they are transformed when you take that and apply it to your lives. So we're gonna to try to do that more today. I'm gonna to walk through four ways that you can spot idols in your life. Four ways that you can look at this. And um, this, is a, this is a big topic in the biblical counseling world. It's one of the things that we, we're always trying to help uh, people that we work with to try to look at those idols. Um, so there's information about it everywhere, but I'm gonna give particular credit to uh, pastor and biblical counselor Brad Bigney he wrote a book on this called Gospel Treason, and I, I think he lays out this really succinct uh, ways to take a look at idols in your heart. The first one is, I want you to consider where your time and your affection and your energy and your money and allegiances lead you. At the end of that trail, you will see what you functionally worship. You will see what's most important to you. So where your time, your affection, your energy, your money, and your allegiances if, if we were to, if someone were to observe your life last week and they were paying attention for how you spend your money, your time, uh, and, ex and how you express emotions, well, what would they perceive as most important to you? Your actions, you see, and this is what Jesus was telling us, is your actions, they're a compass. And they are pointing to the throne that's in your heart. So, I think some of you may have a question right now, and I'm going to anticipate that question, and I'm going to try to ask it and answer it. And I'm thinking, you're asking, wait a minute, Pat, are you telling me that everything good in my life is an idol? Are you saying that the things I've worked hard for, the things that I think are blessings in my life from God, the relationships that I have, are you telling me that those are idols? No, I'm not telling you that. What I'm saying is that in 1 Timothy, in 6, 1 Timothy 6, God encourage us, encourages us to enjoy good gifts from him. So we are to enjoy God's blessings. But it also talks about enjoy them without going to excess. So an idol, oftentimes what it is, is it's a good thing in your life that may be a blessing from God, but because of the direction of your heart, you escalate it and turn it into something and you demand it and you start to sin, and you start to do all sorts of things to try to get this more of this idol in your life. And so the subtlety is that an, something good in your life can turn into an idol when there's an excessive attachment to it. So things are people. So if you take a look at your sacrifices, um, you know, asking questions, looking at your time, looking at what's occupying the central throne of your life, 
Uh, you might even have fear dominating your life if you lose something. You ha you, maybe you have really strong emotions about things that you're trying to protect. These are all signs that something is out of whack in your desires. So I'd, I'd, I'd ask you to consider these questions about your time, about your energy and money and allegiances. What do you feel you need? It's a simple question. What do you feel you need? Or what do you feel like you have a right to? What do you think are your rights? What defines success or failure to you? What defines success or failure to you in life? How do you finish this sentence, if only, fill in the blank. What are the if onlys in my life? If only I had a 115 inch TV. Do they make those? I don't even know if they do or not. What does life mean to you? So these are heart level questions about how you're spending your time and money and energy. And then the second way is that I want you to pay attention to your heart in times of adversity and suffering. Adversity acts like this furnace and it, it brings these underlying sentiments to the top, to the surface. And then suffering has this very unique way of revealing the aspects that a comfortable day doesn't. C.S. Lewis talked about how God speaks loudly in pain and he's acting, pain is acting like a megaphone to the rouse the deaf world. So in times of suffering, you're gonna learn more about yourself than any other time and what you genuinely believe. Where are you seeking security? So questions like this. Where, what are the times in my life that doesn't seem worth living? What are your dreams and your fantasies? Where do you believe that God has let you down? Number three, pay attention to the chaos in your life. Idols and chaos are closely intertwined and idols don't operate alone. With idols, there's sin and that produces more and there's this multitude of idols going on and there's always confusion. So when you find yourself wondering, what is going on? I, I can't make sense of anything. What's happening? And there's relational confusion in your life? It's a signal that there might be idolatry involved. And at this point, what I'd like to do is for the purpose of illustrating what I'm talking here on this, because this is a big one, chaos and idolatry. I'd like to share part of my story with you about where there was chaos and idolatry existing at the same time. I'm 54 years old. In my late teens, uh, mid-20s and 30s, I suffered with what some would call clinical depression. It was severe. In addition, I was an angry man, very angry man. I knew only two emotions, two ways of relating to the world, depression or anger. Now, I could function in the world. I could function in the world, but my inner life was torment. And I used this anger. It controlled the atmosphere in my marriage and in my home. It was how I related to the world. And my wife, Carl, and I, we're going to be celebrating 30 years of marriage this year, which is great. Thank you. For the first 17 years of our marriage, I had contributed uh, to the suffering in our marriage through this chaos. And I was, I was using my depression and my anger to control everything. I had to. That's what I believed I had to do to survive. So I, I controlled my home. I controlled my wife. And I had, I had honestly sought help for depression in everything, everything that I could. 
And there are more details of this story, but I'm keeping it focused on this particular part because, you know, and I love to share my story, not just because of the attention, but I, I love to talk about how God works in people and in our marriage. And so there's more I would share if I had time, but roughly five years before our marriage started to turn the corner, so, so five years before things started to get better, is I was, I was introduced to this concept of heart idols. One day, a very good friend, Tim Porter, said to me, well, I always wanted to point at somebody, <laughs> pointing at you. <laughs> Tim Porter said to me in the midst of a very dark day, we were talking about this, we think we were at a Chipotle restaurant eating. So as we're eating, Tim just says, you have an idolatrous view of life. And I asked, which part? I think he may have taken a bite and he said, all of it. <laughs> all of it. That was earth shattering to me. It didn't feel like a gut punch. It felt like, wow, what does that mean? And I felt something like, I got to figure this out because this doesn't sound good. An, an idolatrous view of life. All of it. My entire life. And so from that day forward, I started to work to learn what's going on inside my heart. And I wanted to find out what are the idols that are operating in my life. And I came to the realization that what I really wanted at the core was I wanted a good marriage. I wanted a godly marriage. I wanted to turn back and erase the family legacy that I came from. I did not want my life in my married life to be what I had when I was growing up, and I, my wife didn't either, so we shared that goal. But you see, I was, I was so committed to that vision of my marriage that, and I was a Christian at the time, I believed I knew what it took to make that happen. And so I would use my depression and anger, and I would, uh, I would basically got to a spot where, because my marriage wasn't working, my wife was my ultimate enemy. That, that she was the enemy to my heart's desire. She was getting away in the way of my great marriage that I had in mind. You're starting to feel the chaos. You're starting to feel the insanity. So um, I believe that to get a better marriage, what I needed to do is I knew, what, I knew how to make this happen. And uh, so I would yell. I would control. I would threaten. I would manipulate. I would swear. I did all this because I was working on a better marriage. I was fighting for a good marriage. Do you hear the chaos in that? That, that? that is an idol that got way out of control. And I could justify it. And even when people would say, hey, you got this going on, you need to stop this, you have an idolatrous view of life. And I'd sit there and go, yeah, but you don't understand because I'm unique and my situation is different than anybody else's. That's not true. Because of idolatry, all of our situations are the same when it comes down to it. Is are we following God or not? So... Uh, when I first started to, you know, I, I tell this story again, not to, not to thank you for clapping about the 30 years of marriage and God has done some great things, but I'm, I'm trying to illustrate that uh, transformation in our marriage took place because there was transformation in my heart towards my idolatry between God. So before I had to deal with anything with my wife, I had to deal with God first. And I had to repent of my idols. And so look at chaos in your life. Um, you got to be asking yourselves, Again, this is such a great question. What do I feel I need? And even better, what do I feel like I have a right to? Like, I believed I had a right to something in my marriage. I, had, I believed that I had a right to have a better marriage. Well, who doesn't believe that? But I was, it was way out of whack. And so, also, when do I struggle with bitterness or jealousy? 
And then we have number four. These are asking yourself some really pointed heart diagnostic questions. Am I willing to sin to obtain it? So whatever it is, a good marriage, successful career, um, anything. Am I willing to sin to make it happen? And then secondly, am I willing to sin if I fear losing it? Do I use it, whatever it is, as a refuge? Do I, do I run to it for a false sense of comfort? It can be anything, any person or anything. I want you to reflect on these questions and then see what surfaces for you. And so here are two practical steps that you can do after today. When you leave here today, here are two very specific things that you can do. We publish these sermon conversation guides and their notes that come along with the sermon and you know, they, they, they can be used in missional communities, they can be used by yourself or preferably with somebody else and we have them available at fcchudson.com. There's also a stack available right on the other side of that wall which is our information birth booth. But on there is a QR code that you click into and it'll bring you out to a website that links you to a worksheet that will take these questions that I've been asking you and more and it helps you kind of categorize it's nothing, you know, it's, it's a good tool. Um, nothing magical about it, but gets you thinking, where does your heart tend to drift when it comes to idolatry? And then I would encourage you to have at least one conversation with somebody else about that this week. Maybe you've never heard of this before, or maybe you hear this all the time, you know about heart idols. Let this be fresh for you, because idolatry gets in our way with God. And then what we have is the second thing that you can do is I would like you to consider attending our upcoming session of Freedom Groups. Freedom Group starts February 29th, so a little around a month from now. Thursday nights, 6.30, we meet in that back area, and what we do is that we learn how to understand our heart. We learn how, to, how, does, our, how does suffering impact our heart? How does sinning impact our heart? And what we discover is that we all have a primary attitude of the heart. Where do we tend to drift uh, in our relationship with God? Whether it's fear, anger, foolishness, or despair, uh, there's a commonality in this. So registration is open today for Freedom Groups on our website. I'd encourage you to go there and sign up. Now, God strongly cautions against idolatry, as you can probably imagine. He's saying that you can't prioritize anything over him because if you do, it's going to lead to trouble. And idolatry, heart idolatry, it erodes our spiritual well-being. And we displace God from the rightful place in our hearts and we allow sin to take root. And this can be, the, the challenging part about looking at your heart idols is that you can arrive to a, a place, you may arrive at a place of hopelessness. And you may explore your personal idols and just get to the point where you're like, okay, 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 that's enough. Well, the good news is that we all share idolatry together, so you're not alone in that. And the root of idolatry is unbelief in God. And so God has answered that problem through Jesus Christ. And there is, there is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's the solution to idolatry. And if universal problem is idolatry, what the good news is there's one gospel for all of us, that we can turn to Christ to repent against our idols, no matter who you are. If you're a follower in Christ, God wants you to see your idolatry not as condemnation. He's not out to condemn you, but he wants you to see as, as conviction in your life and to turn back to him on a daily basis in the face of your idolatry. And if you're somebody who's investigating Christ but, and you haven't given your life over to him yet, 
This applies to you too, because God wants you to see the idolatry that's working in your life is ultimately going to lead to meaningless, to a futile life without him. And so when he's pointing out idolatry in your heart, he's asking you to, to look at him, the one true God, and to turn your life over to him for the first time. So while you're investigating idols, what we need to do is we have to keep our eyes on Christ. It's through his perfect record, through his life, sinless life, and his sacrifice on the cross, he forgave our sins and he restored that relationship with Christ. And so idolatry does not break that relationship. He's paved the way that we can experience freedom from this influence of idols in our life. And in the gospel, what we see is that lasting change. So true heart change, it doesn't come from some form of a plan or steps. To rid ourselves of idolatry, what it comes is through a relationship of knowing a person, and that's Christ. And so it's more important to know God than to know your motives thoroughly. Our hearts are deceitful, and therefore we don't always see them clearly. But the gospel sends this message that God doesn't hide himself from us. We can be looking at our idols and see what they're all about, but God will never hide himself for us. It's his deepest desire that we know him. And so knowing Christ and, and our knowledge of him and growing in affection for him, that should be your primary goal in your Christian walk. Okay? If you seek Christ first, it's going to change everything about you, even to the deepest heart, part of your hearts. So while seeking out what are the idols operating in my heart, it's a good thing. Don't take your eyes off of Christ. And so I'm going to leave one passage here that, that summarizes it, and then we'll move into communion. And I'll, it's going to be up on the screen. Colossians 3, 1 through 5. This is actually coming from the NIV version because I like how it starts. Since then... You have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. So we are now going to focus our hearts on Christ by moving to communion. And I'm going to ask the ushers to prepare communion and start walking in, and they're going to pass out the bread to you. And as they do that, uh, I'd like you to just take the bread in your hand, and we'll wait for the rest uh, for it to be handed out throughout the auditorium, and then I will provide some instructions on uh, taking communion. And as they're doing that, I'd like to I'd like you to be thinking about this as you take communion. It's about remembering Christ. It's about remembering what he did. And in the face of your idols, you can be praying this. We have Psalm 139 that says, Search me, O God, and try and know my thoughts. So that when we're seeking idols in our hearts, this is a prayer that we can ask God, is to show me what's getting in the way of you in my heart. And we, we take communion and we remember what it's all about. It's a reminder of his love and commitment for us. We can identify idols and repent because God is here for us. So as you're 
as we're going to walk through communion, I want you to turn to Christ. In spite of your idols, all the false gods that we have, Christ is Lord and Christ is worthy, better than any of those idols. And if we seek him, he will free us from those idols.